I really did appreciate the uh, word that uh, our coordinator used, uh, that it was a progressive uh, element to our, our uh, time together. Um, just, just the, uh, I guess it was just a couple of weeks ago, we had been down in Nogales. Um, my wife and I traveled down, getting everything ready to leave, and it was uh, two or three hundred people waiting down on the other side of the border for their 26th anniversary celebration in this church there. And they've just kind of come into the doctrines of grace and the excitement of all these things and, and uh, uh, preparation. And, and uh, I thought of this when he mentioned it's progressive. We uh, forgot. I don't know how I did it, but I forgot our passports. And I didn't remember that I'd forgotten our passports until we're crossing the, the border going into Mexico and... Uh, Suddenly, what do we do? You know, because you're not supposed to be able to come back into the U.S. without your passport, and uh, it's really a big deal. You know, we really. Uh, and so I said, well, Nance, I think we'll just if they keep us here for some days or whatever, we're just going to go ahead because these people are all waiting there. And and uh, so we crossed over, and uh, that night, of course, we began. We had six sermons, and Monday morning, finally, we're coming back, and uh, people from the church went with us, and uh, we. Went to different lines trying to cross back, which was the shortest, you know. And finally, we're, we're at that moment. And, and I pull out our driver's license and hand him to the fellow. And he says, he looks at it, uh, you know, with his very formal, you know, uh, ice uniform and everything. And he looks at us and he said, this doesn't look good. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so he says, what I'm going to have to do, and he's checking in his computer. And he says, what I'm going to have to do is give you an examination. I want you to know it will get progressively more difficult. Now, I think our conference will get progressively better. And uh, so I, we were both, Nancy especially, because she says, I don't know, you know, who is the 16th president of the United States? Is it Abraham Lincoln? And, you know, she wasn't sure what kind of questions. And so there was sort of that, uh, she was glad I was with her, you know, type of thing. And, and so he looks at us and he says, now, it's going to get progressively more difficult. We had told him we had just spoken in this Baptist church. And so he says, the first question is, quote from memory, John 3.16. And we did very well with that. And then he asked, Romans 8.28, more difficult. And we did. And then he said, Psalm 1. And we got to about verse 3. And I said, you know, we need our granddaughter here. She has that memorized. And, and so then he picked it up and quoted all the rest of Psalm 1. And uh, he was a Christian, and, and, uh, and of course, we went right on across, and it was great. Uh, because the last time we crossed, we had some apples, and they had lined us up on the side and, you know, told us, don't move. And for 40 minutes, they went through every part of our vehicle. And, and of course, we weren't looking forward to exactly what was ahead, but it was progressively more difficult, the exam. But I think our uh, conference, God willing, will be progressively better each time. So we're... We're beginning, though, with the foundations. And I, I thought also, as I looked, we had, uh, was it last August, a year ago, last August, we had thought of this conference as really bringing together the GA, you know, and missions. And, and we're kind of a small group here this morning. But I remembered also, just as I was seated here, thinking of a conference back in, I think it was 1975, we had a conference in Colombia, in Bogota, and uh, the issue in Colombia and, and much of Latin America is sola scriptura. 
And we had this conference at the, the Apostolic Foundation. And uh, years later, people talk of that conference like, wow, what an impact it made. And people that I've talked to, they said, oh, you probably, well, we're two or three hundred people there, pastors. And I said, there were only 12 of us. But it had an important impact on how it was, the messages and things, how they went out. So our prayer is that our time together would have on our own lives and ourselves for missions would have an impact on us. Um, so as I would uh, try to go through the foundation of missions, uh, I did do up this outline. Uh, if you would pass those out. Mitch is always ready to serve. He's amazing. Um, And our plan is to have a time of of not just questions and answers, but uh, hopefully discussion and uh, working together with this. But I would like to um, begin with this whole area of the theological foundation. And as we... Do we need more? Oh, well, I, I think I sure thought I had more. Thank you. Let me see. Here's some more. I didn't think we were that many to need more. I always remember uh, listening to the team of uh, Rene Padilla. Uh, theologian of Latin America, the Southern Cone, and traveling all through Latin America with John Stock. And uh, what a team of translator and, and teacher, the two of them. And, uh, and John Stock would start with Buenos Dias and good morning. You know, they were, they were, they, he had fun kind of starting in, in what Spanish he knew. But uh, as we start, to me, this is really a, what I would consider an amazing moment that our our gathering together is really with that of to pray and as we did last night and, and have a strategy to think of how we can see the gospel uh, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of our great God. And that is really our, our set purpose together as we would meet it's, and to realize it's not only our passion, but I believe it's God's passion to see the whole of the earth filled with His glory. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And as I've been asked to set forth the foundation of missions, our, our task of taking the gospel into all the nations of the earth. And uh, I think at times, although our, our churches declare, declare their belief in the Christian scriptures with that goal of... of uh, sending the gospel into all the world, I do believe sometimes our, our belief of that does not match up with reality of our, our great passion and goal in a constant way. We get caught up with, oh, what I think, sometimes we think of the theological secrets and we're, we get so involved with those things and we, we really miss the bigger picture of what we really are all about. And so... Um, over 40 years ago, 
It was a book that really gave me a great deal of direction, and uh, I'll refer to that a fair amount. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have read it. I remember John Gerizzo did a, a great interview on it oh, many years ago, and it's called An Introduction to the Science of Missions. A terrible title, really. Who wants to read An Introduction to the Science of Missions? I mean, it just sounds like something that, you know, should be on the shelf somewhere, but not something you really just devour. And this book has meant a great deal to me uh, historically in my own life when I was in seminary and uh, how it gave me direction. Um, and I would just uh, mention that book, Johann Hermann Bovink. Uh, he was really the nephew of the great theologian uh, that uh, had studied under Abraham Kuyper, Hermann Bovink. And I think many of you would have now finally Bovink's four volumes. Um, I think those were the volumes really in Dutch that uh, some of our professors uh, who spoke and read Dutch, I think they were using much of that material to teach in their courses at Westminster Seminary and other places all those years back. And now we have their source material in the English language. And uh, anyway, that's a great uh, help, I think, to us in our day. But Bobbing really calls us to what I believe is the only foundation possible for this task that we have. And Bobbing says, For the work of missions is the work of God. It is not lawful for us to improvise. At each step, we must ask what it is that God demands. Although it will not always be easy to find the right course, our search must surely be led by what God has said in His Word. And I believe that uh, really the practice and theology of missions is to be really the what we would call in, in other areas the regulatory principle, but I believe it's mandatory in missions. God's Word is what directs us in this focus that we have from God of missions. And this uh, classic work that I've spoken of, of, of uh, Bobbing, um, I believe is not just a book for missionaries who are in preparation, but it's really a book for especially all of us who are preparing, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. And uh, I believe Bobbing certainly starts the volume with a lot of questions that uh, sometimes we're almost afraid even to deal with. I don't think... The answers to them are very easily yes and no, but they are questions that we should be working with. Uh, He has those um, questions. Can our work be restricted exclusively to preaching? Or does it also include teaching people to read, translating the Scriptures into their native language, or maybe even having to do with uh, uh, some of those very simple things of hygiene and purification of water, and things that we're not even maybe uh, wanting to get too involved with, but he's really asking a bigger question that uh, is there. He asks, is missionary work, does it include more than preaching? Is it such additional activity simply preparatory, or is it to be included in our concept of missions? Is the missionary approach simple in nature, exclusively preaching, or is it comprehensive? ought it to be immediately concerned with the entire life of the non-Christian. And there's all these uh, 
myriad of questions that aren't real easy to answer. Yet, I believe if we have a theology that is based in God's Word, in the big picture of things, there are real concrete answers that are given to us as we do the work that God has given us to do. So, I think uh, in your outline there, the first... uh, Uh, Question: I call it a commitment question. Is there a a real commitment that we have? How committed are we to proclaiming the whole gospel to the nations? How determined are we to do whatever is necessary to carry out the great commission that has been given to us? And uh, I think in most of our churches we have that element almost... uh, Foreign missions, how about Cleveland, or how about uh, Carlisle, or how about our own culture here, or Flint, Michigan. And certainly, in a sense, uh, we have to realize that the whole mission field has come to us. And uh, I think we have to not only think of other nations out there far away, but these other nations have really come to us in our cities. They're here right now. And uh, how do our local churches mesh with foreign missions? And uh, what is that method that God has given to us? And so I would ask the question, really, where do we begin? And uh, uh, I believe that we have to have something of a a big picture of the gospel and its full-orbed world view of the gospel itself. I think there is that sense in which we begin with, in the beginning, God. And there's that great important element of beginning with God and His, uh, His gospel. And that uh, from the very beginning, there is that message that through that seed of Abraham, there will be blessing to all the nations of the earth. And, and certainly, um, that was the picture that we have in the book of Acts. Uh, some degree, I believe, the Old Testament, it's, it's uh, the people of God upon that hill and the other nations are to see that. But now certainly we are those who are to go out to the nations. Uh, it's, it's a centrifugal kind of thing that it spreads on and goes out to the nations. So there in the outline, um, as I believe that foreign missions are central to all that God reveals Himself to be, And that that story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration gives us that full picture of of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, just for a few moments, let's look at the gospel in that full orb sense of creation. And certainly, the pagan nations around Israel worship the forces of nature, much, I believe, as... Our own culture has people worshiping Mother Nature and uh, uh, all the uh, uh, necessity, I believe, of our teaching in our churches and on the mission field especially that uh, God is not His creation and His creation is not God. He is not it and it is not He. It's something that's at the very core of our, our theology, who God is. And there is a great distinction that He is not His creation and His creation 
is not He. And so, uh, there is that sense in which He is involved at every point of life. And uh, the psalmist declares, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Moses instructs us, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. There is no other. And I believe that element that God enters the world, but He is not the world. Um, the, uh, the element I think that too often even in our own circles, we have something of that dualism almost that uh, there's the spiritual and material and that's all good and, and then the material, well, that's going to just all disappear and that's, that's no good, the material. But God certainly created it all. Yes. What is it? Seven times through that, that uh, portion He declares it to be good and then when He makes the crown of that creation, it's very good. And there is that uh, seeing the goodness of creation. And I think this is part of understanding of the whole picture of the Gospel. That whether it be food or languages or bodies or stars or galaxies, uh, all that God made is good. And that yes, uh, foundational commissions is seeing God's good creation, what He has done. It's a whole world Gospel that we have. But then, we are all very conscious of a fall. And uh, that goodness of God's creation, there comes that moment that uh, uh, Adam and Eve, of course, rebel and, and uh, everything then is distorted. That entire created order. From that day all of creation has been groaning. And there is a certain brokenness in all of creation. Uh, even man, the crowning point, we have murder and deceit and divorce and rape and war and brokenness of every kind. It's the reality that we all live in. And certainly, the nations of the world, that's what they're experiencing. And I think, uh, the fall really did so change us that we became lovers of ourselves instead of lovers of God. And I think that expression, uh, I think I have it right, uh, Luther's expression of that it, we became curved into ourselves. That's the corruption. And it's, it's inbred into us. We're born with that. We no longer fully... We're no longer fully alive to God. We're now dead in our sin. We're not alive to God. Now, um, redemption. Isn't it interesting? At least I've always been fascinated. Those first three chapters of the, of the Word of God are so foundational to everything that in three chapters we have, you know, creation, fall, and redemption. I mean, right away, it's almost like there's an unfolding of everything. And certainly you can say, well, it's not all clear to Moses at that point, And that's right. But when you read the whole story, we can look back with the light that God has given us of the whole story. And it's amazing how much is there. I mean, it's like, 
how long have we all been studying Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And you read it again and, wow, look at this, look at this, and look at this. And, it's, and it doesn't take just those uh, you know, theologians that can do all the uh, amazing literary things and, and, uh, and I'm not sure I can always follow them completely. You just keep on reading and it's amazing all that's there. You know, the, the whole thing, I still remember people asking, now, how is it that Paul understood this? And of course, we believe that through his being authorized by the Lord Christ himself and the Holy Spirit giving him that inspiration, he did understand that seed to be Christ. And so there's that unfolding of redemption that's there. God's story of redemption is really that story of the image bearers and all of creation. And that, that redemption will be, as our hymn has it, as far as the curse is found, redemption is promised and comes to reality in Christ. And certainly our emphasis upon Ephesians 1 of predestinating and electing work of God that all things are brought together in that redeeming Head, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Then let me give you just a moment of what I really believe sometimes we almost leave out. Sometimes it seems to me that we, we have a, a tendency almost to make the Gospel as something that's not beautiful. It's almost like you're a sinner, there's a Redeemer, believe, pray a prayer, and here it is. How fast can we get that over? But there is a beauty to the unfolding of the Gospel itself. Aesthetically, I believe there's a beauty. Yes, there's a, an ugliness of the cross and our sins and all that's there. But there is a beauty. God is the great artist as He unfolds His beautiful work of redemption. And I, I do believe it's the One who forgives us our sin certainly is not some tribal deity, but He is the God of all creation. And He is the Creator and Redeemer of the nations. And missions exist because God exists with His grace and glory for the restoration of all things. I often really emphasize in Latin America that, yes, the, the Gospel we have brings to us the forgiveness of our sins but it's it's much, much, much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's the gospel, good news of a new heaven and a new earth. It really it's it's big. It's really big, and it has to do with all of creation. And I believe this is uh, part of what we have the promises to us. That Christ is coming again and there will be a, a renewal of all things when He comes. And just as sure, surely as we've been made new creatures in Christ, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, so that the heavens and the earth will be purified by fire, as Peter says. There will be no more sin, death, and pain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that. He's the first fruit of it all. Now, 
Let me, just for a moment, uh, ask you to think of Second Peter chapter 3 with me. And I realize that there may be differences among us how we understand this, but I think there are some who refer to Second Peter 3.10 and say that this whole material world will be annihilated, burned up, be no more when Christ returns. And our King James Version and the Revised Standard Version have the reading, shall be burned up and will be burned up. But I do believe uh, even the notes now, I think I looked last night and uh, in your new King James uh, Study Bible, it has the note that refers to what I believe the oldest and best Greek manuscripts have will be laid bare, as in the NIV, or will be exposed, as the ESV. And uh, in a beautiful way, Cornelius Venema, in that outstanding volume, The Promise of the Future, he shows how this points us to the process of refinement and purification, but not of utter annihilation. And that this... Greek term is actually drawn from the metallurgical field and refers to how the refining process produces the pure grade of gold and silver. And this is how God will renew the whole of creation so it will be the home of righteousness as Peter speaks of it. And this process, I think, will lay open for our discovery all the glory and goodness of God in all creation. And so there will be this complete cosmic sanctification so that all will be very good once again. Great good news. Here is God's creation come full circle. Purification, not annihilation. Yes, this is a whole world gospel that we have. It's good news. Hmm. That which is broken and sad becomes glad and complete and full again in Christ. So where do we begin? I believe we start with God and His story of creation, will be fully alive in the new creation. And this is what I believe is full redemption. There's not a hoof left behind. God renews in a powerful way. And this comes to completion in the seed of Abraham. And good news for the whole of the nations. Now, in your outline, there's a second Foundational question. What is God's purpose in missions? And uh, I ask the question really is what is it that is in the Reformed faith that demands the expenditure of energy, passion, activity? The Apostle Paul risks his life. There's this tremendous activity. Is there anyone so active that you can think of? I mean, someone who's on fire with the glory of the grace of God and the sovereignty of God's grace, the Apostle Paul is just this amazing man. And yet, as we read his letters, 
from First Thessalonians. The Lord's message rang out from you, the church, not only Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Again, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's Word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So that our, our missionary task is not something that just goes around in circles and, and uh, there is a purpose, a direction there is a, uh, what we would speak of as uh, God's clear purpose for the expansion of His kingdom. Again, uh, let me refer to Herman Bovink. Uh, the Dutch have meant a great deal to me in my own understanding of missions and, and taking the gospel to others. Uh, some of my Dear friends, we had at some time at Cornerstone oh, about 300 Dutch people on Sunday evenings for some time. And it was kind of a glorious uh, span on Sunday evenings when we'd have all these people. And they would say, well, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And uh, then I learned to respond by saying, it doesn't take much to be Dutch. <laughs> so there was a, uh, an enjoyment, one, an- one with another there. And... Uh, there is a, a, a beautiful heritage, though, I believe, with the, the Dutch. And again, it's Bavink that uh, gives us, presents three aspects of God's single purpose, the coming of His kingdom. The threefold aim, the conversion of the heathen, the establishment of the church, the manifestation of divine grace, God's glory. Bavink certainly emphasizes that I quote, these are not three separate purposes, but one great and exalted purpose disclosed to us in three blessings of which the glorification of God is undoubtedly foremost. The establishment of His church, second, and the conversion of the heathen, third. Now, I think if we think of it in a human chronological timeline, it is in just the opposite order. But as far as importance, it's in this order that we would have now given that I would give to you now as we look at those very quickly. First, the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of all missionary work. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, we have from Psalm 83, uh, here is God's uh, destruction of His enemies and let them know that you, whose name is Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. And then the psalmist's passion for God's glory upon the nations, we read, may His name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed. Or all nations will cause, call Him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. 
So, again, God's aim in missions, as He would have through the prophets, it's His own glory. He says from Ezekiel 38, verse 23, what powerful words the Lord speaks. And so, I will show My greatness and My holiness, and I will make Myself known in the sight of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. The New Testament certainly has that same glory of God as being the great purpose. Uh, This Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end comes. And then... We know those words of Jesus also. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then that emphasis that uh, isn't so much upon the needs of the nations, but that His glory, His authority would be made known. And Paul puts it, those words that we all know, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And so that... uh, the entire New Testament pattern from Christ and the apostles is for that activity of missions is for the glory of God. Let me give you one more uh, Dutch Bavink quote here real quick. Uh, uh, the church exists in the first place to praise God by word, deed, prayer, and worship. This doxological task is so central and all-controlling that it ought to constitute the very core of the life of the church. Within Israel there was, as we have seen, a holy fear of the name Jehovah. The glory of God constituted the dominating motive in every deed and prayer. Paul stated that grace was given to him to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ among the heathen. And he concludes this reference to his missionary calling with these remarkable words, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So really, the very purpose of missions lies on another plane. Above it all, the church does not exist primarily to satisfy the needs of the world. It exists in the first place for God's glory. And certainly we are set to that. But then the second element, the establishment of the church, and very briefly, certainly Jesus promised to build His church. And that is something that is taking place. It will take place and He continues to do it. He will knock down the very gates of hell and go into enemy territory and the church will be built into the nations of the earth. And certainly we know from those great doxological passages of of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ that there is a people that no man can number. There's so many of them from every tribe and nation, people and language and family of the earth. That's reality. God is doing that. His church is being established. He's gathering to Himself His redeemed people from every corner of the earth. And that must be our goal 
in missions. Bob Inc. expresses it this way. The church also exists to bear the glory of God's Word from generation to generation and from century to century until faith will finally be transformed into sight. The church makes the Word of God known to each generation and preserves in the service of God and exercises loving care of the souls belonging to it. He will build His church among the nations. And then the last, uh, certainly the passion for the conversion of the lost. And uh, uh, I'm sure many of you read Romans chapter 9 and we, we wonder, here is the apostle to the nations and yet he had such a love for his own people that continual sorrow and willing to be cut off from Christ for this this passion for taking the gospel to his own people. And yet, here was his, his life to take the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles. And uh, it's of the very essence of the church that we would get the gospel to people. Real living people are all around us and to the ends of the earth. And uh, again, the chronological order humanly speaking, on a timeline would be the conversion of the lost coming first. And then the church is established. And that brings all the saints together. And then it's God who receives the glory. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge and, and fills to the measure of all the fullness of God, His glory. Bob Inc. has this word just at the end of this section If we keep these three reasons for the existence of the church in mind, we are in no danger of sacrificing the one to the other. He contends, there need be no conflict between the church increasing its membership and its caring for those it already has. The God who looks after the present members of His church would also increase its membership. By increasing its membership, God sustains His church And sustaining His church, God increases its membership. In a church faithful to the Scripture, the leaders can never be hostile to the simple and uninterrupted uninterrupted care of its own members. All for God's glory. Now, a sticky question. Uh, Maybe a question for later. Can we win souls without accomplishing the Great Commission. Some of you remember something of the genocide in Rwanda, 1994, April. Uh, Something like two-thirds of the country was worshiping in evangelical churches. And then... Chaos and the genocide uh, result in the death of about a half a million people in a very short amount of time. And yet it would seem like there was such a superficial, at least, evangelization of of the country. We have, I think, uh, we were talking of Guatemalan 
coffee this morning, and, and certainly Guatemala is one of the most evangelized countries, and yet it is still just violence, corruption. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, some of you, if you get Christianity Today, there was just a recent article, uh, some kind of preparation for an outreach that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is having. And Dr. Graham has, uh, when I mentioned this to someone, they said it's about time. He's written a, something on easy believism. And isn't that one of the real problems that we have? Can there be really a fulfillment of the Great Commission winning souls but without really discipling? It would seem to me that the Great Commission requires us not merely to save souls with evangelism but to make disciples because our very theological foundation proclaims Christ is Lord, not just over our souls, but over all of life. And Lily, one other question here, uh, and I think it's a penetrating question, pointed, practical question. How can our churches and seminaries ignore God's mission to the nations? I know there's exceptions. I know that uh, some of you have experienced uh, tremendous things in this area. But the goal and purpose of missions, it's the very heart of historic Christianity. It's at the very heart of the Bible itself. How can you read the book of Acts and it's not all about missions? Yet missions is often considered not essential material. It's an elective somewhere. Look through your uh, you know, great systematic theologies, and, and I think they're great, and I'm not, uh, uh, I love Charles Hodge, uh, three volumes, uh, mine's an old, old edition from the 19th century, and uh, has a separate volume that's the index, and great stuff, uh, but it doesn't have anything on miss- missions. I mean, it ought to be kind of weird to think of that. Uh, Burkhoff, you know, hey, I mean... <coughs> I'm sure some of you could tell me, oh, I have a systematic that... But that's pretty amazing to think, here we are in the great theological foundation and we don't have missions as a central place in it. Uh, let me give you this that I found in a, just an excellent book. Uh, yes, if you haven't picked this up, I think um, Eric Wright, I was actually in seminary with him in Philadelphia the early 70s, and uh, we had him as a speaker at one of our GAs in the early 90s, or I guess, uh, I think they were still called GAs. I'm not sure where the expression General Assembly came from. GAs kind of sounds uh, pretty formal, or at least we're, we advanced along the ways here, haven't we? But uh, Eric Wright has this volume, the, A Practical Theology of Missions. And in that, he has this, this word uh, really... Uh, taken from uh, uh, Patrick Johnstone, the editor of the Operation World, um, that I think many of us would use. And he's speaking to a large audience of seminary students and professors in, where is he? In Toronto. There he is. Uh, in Toronto, Canada. 
And uh, he says, tragically, these two, the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of missions, have been divorced from each other in the Western world. Seminaries hinder world evangelization precisely because they treat missions as an optional subject in their curricula. Only those committed to missions study about missions. The great majority of students preparing for pastoral ministry have no exposure to what is the heartbeat of God. That ignorance is reflected in their ministry. I believe this is a fatal flaw in theological education. This is the very goal of what we're all about, of God's Word. It's not that we have read all the, the latest and we can quote all the Puritans or, and I'm all, I love the Puritans. No, nobody leave here, please. But, but we can almost have a competition of how much we can quote and know and yet we miss something that was at their heart. That's really, again, uh, the very heart of God's suffering. That is, His Son's suffering was that the earth would all the ends of the earth, Psalm 22, would remember and turn to the Lord and worship Him. All the ends of the earth. So my request would be that, yes, may God awaken us, our own hearts, to this passion of God. And that that passion would not only be in our own hearts and lives, but yes, that He would spread that really even into our theological education and our writing and our work together. Wake us up from the, that the purpose of mission has to do with God's very purpose. Then on your outline, a last, uh, what is the foundation for the practice of missions? And certainly we would, we would uh, I believe, take ourselves and everyone to the Great Commission. Uh, what is that practice? Um, certainly to observe all things that Christ has commanded us to uh, put this into practice. Um, we hold to our confession of faith. And more importantly, we hold to the Old and New Testaments as the very Word of God. And that thrusts us out. Much of missions, I believe, in the last century wondered about without that nor star of the Word of God. And so, I believe that the New Testament really does give us a pattern, a regulatory principle, if you will, for missions. Uh, I think most of you probably have read uh, from uh, uh, something of Roland Allen's works, uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or ours. And uh, a volume, if you haven't... Uh, I think you can get new editions, but it's, it's a, a book that, though it's a, an Anglican, uh, again, we'll, we'll look more carefully at this uh, tomorrow, God willing. But uh, this, I think, is a volume we need to, to learn the principles that are here. Again, we'll talk about the, the danger of legalistically pushing it down as an iron mold down upon the bride of Christ. But there are great principles here that are coming, I believe, out of the New Testament. And he is the one who has this word 
He says, in a little more than ten years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire. Before A.D. 47, there were no churches in these provinces. And in A.D. 57, St. Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could plan extensive tours into the far west without anxiety lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence for want of his guidance and support. In the pages of the New Testament, he stands forth as the founder of the churches in these provinces. So far as the foundation of the churches is concerned, it is perfectly clear that the writer of the Acts intends to represent St. Paul's work as complete. The churches were really established. Now, what he calls Paul's principles, methods, as foundational for missions, he believes that they were something much more than just what we would learn from El Cid, a great novel, or what we could learn from King Arthur and, uh, and uh, the courage of these different ones, but that we really do have something that's intended to throw light on our path for the 21st century that gives us a paradigm, a direction to work within. We are to be those who submit our principles and methods to our theology that comes out of the New Testament and I believe even from the methodology that we have from the Apostle Paul. Again, Roland Allen speaks against, as we'll look at later, the colonialism and paternalism that had invaded the mission fields. He speaks against the colonialism of the 19th century. And as uh, we really have what he was doing was speaking against what we might call the compound uh, approach or the fortress mentality of uh, methods that were being used at that time, the paternalistic tendencies and attitudes that must be, I believe, uh, dealt with and repented of. Because they really are not with the Spirit of Christ. When Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he surely didn't mean his gestures, personality, mannerisms. I feel sure he was directing us to imitate his principles, methods, habits, his gospel-centeredness. And then I believe the Lord Christ Speaking, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Before we get to not just questions and answers, but I'm sure discussion, uh, let me give you a, uh, a word from uh, a book that I, I would also recommend highly to you. In fact, I'd be interested. How many of you have read uh, uh, this book, Finish the Mission? Uh, oh, I would recommend it. Then No one's read it. 
Uh, it's edited by John Piper and David Mathis. Okay, we one at least. Uh, I really think there's some real challenge here uh, working with things. Not that you would... Uh, is there any book that you fully agree with except God's Word? I mean, really, uh, I have a thing that happens to me so often is, you know, what I say and do and work with people all day long and I come at night and, oh, did I say that right? Lord, forgive me. I think I was wrong when I said that. I mean, I don't agree myself at the end of the day. <laughs> so if you're only going to read those with whom you completely agree, I guess we read only the Bible. But I really recommend this. He has a little word from one of the uh, the uh, chapters, I guess, uh, from Michael Oh, who's, uh, uh, I believe he's, he's actually Korean, um, who's a missionary to Japan. And he, I think if I remember right, he speaks of how it was such a, a learning process as he grew up with knowing something of how the Japanese killed something like 20 million Koreans. I mean, it just is astounding, the horror of raping these young girls and all that went on those years, the horror of it all. And he didn't understand the depth of all that had taken place until he was there in Japan and he was learning more and more about all this. And he had to go through himself this process of more and more forgiveness and working with these people that had done these things to his people and, and being a missionary to them. He has this little uh, word here. He says, uh, speaks of how once uh, or or this uh, story that he tells of, uh, of two Pakistanis in New York City. And he says one was a Christian who was riding in a taxi driven by a Muslim. The Christian asks his countrymen, how is the kingdom of Islam going? Great, replied the driver. Americans are so afraid of us. They're afraid to bleed. I guess I asked the question, you know, are we really afraid to bleed and uh, afraid to sacrifice, I guess, those comforts of home of being with our grandchildren? And I, I asked that question in my own heart. And what is there yet that we can, how are we going to really be involved that's going to cost us something? Really, for the gospel to advance, there's always a cost. It's, it's when... Uh, in Colombia, Chepi Bitterman was uh, kidnapped, and 48 days later, they left him in a bus with a bullet in his heart. But his testimony to M19, his testimony to the rest of the community, and in the front page of the newspaper, all that went on, it was a tremendous moving forward for the gospel in Colombia, M19. That terrorist group is now part of the political system. There were some who were converted. There was God's working in different ways. There were missionaries that went to the Carajone, the indigenous peoples and others there in Colombia. But there's a cost. Are we afraid to believe and bleed and give our lives? Am I ready for that coming year? Um, can we, can I... Say with John Dayton, if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals 
or by worms. We know that what drove this man was his belief in the sovereignty of God. He had seen something of what Isaiah had seen in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That's our theology of missions. What drove him is I believe that element of seeing the glory of the gospel in its full orbed world redemptive power and at the same time to see it's Christ the Lord who has sent us. I believe it does take men who do more than just be doctrinally correct. And as soon as I say that, please, I demand of you. There is nothing I am coming back from the doctrinal foundation that we have. But it takes more than just having the confession of faith. More than just having all these theological secrets understood. We really do need something in our lives, in our outstanding, in our, in our churches, that would be something that does cause us to bleed. And I believe we need to pray that God would cause us to be those who would remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And who with Paul are then willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And I think that's what that passage has to do with in Colossians when there is to fill up in our flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. My prayer is that we would be true to our theological foundations, but at the same time willing, willing to bleed to take the gospel to God's elect in all the nations of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would work in our hearts and lives in such a way that it would be much more than just our Amen. Lord, we pray that You'd work in our hearts, our minds, that there may be those here who would take Your Gospel, all of us, in some way to know what it is to bleed, to be involved in this real world with that full good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. <coughs> guide our minds, our questions, our answers. Guide our tongues that Christ may have the preeminence as we discuss these things. We pray in His name.